We are starting a new series, Mendham. I'm excited about it. Tim prayed for me this morning because I came, into the, uh, I came into the office. I said, guys, I said, you ever write, maybe I'll ask you, have you ever written a sermon and when you're done with the sermon, you go, this should have been a series and not a sermon? No. <laughs> and then, you know, all of my friends on the worship team, I thought this was like really amazing and impactful. And all I got back was, does this mean this is going to go long? Um, and so... Uh, I don't think it'll mean it'll go long. Uh, so what we want to do over these coming weeks leading up to our baptism celebration is walk through the book of Luke together. You got a little card when you came in. Um, that is to sign up to get daily devotions. Again, remember we did through the Bible in 30 days about two months ago? Now we're going to be doing something called walking with Jesus through the book of Luke over 30 days. We're going to send you a da daily devotional five times a week, Monday to Friday, 15 minutes a day, I'm going to preach out of that devotional. So every week, if you're studying that stuff, if you're spending time with God, if you're reading the words of Scripture, you will come to church on Sunday, and we're going to talk about something that you read um, to try to just really push the Word of God deep into our hearts. And so, uh, I don't have a ton of time to go through the introduction to this, but let me just say this about Luke. Luke was a physician. Um, he, he was a doctor. And Luke's gospel, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Luke's gospel is described as a synoptic gospel, essentially meaning that it, it covers the life and the events of Jesus. Luke covers the life and the events of Jesus in more detail than any of the other synoptic writers. Um, a lot of people say it's because uh, he was a physician, he was used to detail and science. There's others that would say it's because he knew what he was trying to do. If you read Luke, he opens it by writing to a guy named Theophilus. He says, Theophilus, I'm writing you th these things because you've heard them, but I want to make sure you understand them. I want to give you backup and detail on them. So in, in a sense, what we're going to do is we're going to pretend we're Theophilus. We're to whom Luke is writing to give us incremental support for the stories he had heard about Jesus. And we're going to take a second look, a second opinion at both those stories and maybe what's going on in our own lives. So, I'm going to ask you to sign up for this today, and I'm going to ask you to sign up for it again next week, and next Monday, those devotions will start. If you have that card, and you want those devotions to come to your mailbox, drop it off at the Welcome Center on your way out. Everybody with me? That was a half-hearted yes, but here, now I'm going to make it go long if you keep that up. I read a story this week of a fly fisherman. He would be fly fisherman. He was going out for the first time. Um, I saw my friend Ed is over there. Ed loves to fly fish. And this guy was going out for the first time. And it, the guide instructor said to him, listen, to catch a fish, you have to think like a fish. They said that to a fish, life is about, imagine this, imagine this. They said to a fish, life is about maximum gratification of appetite at the minimum expenditure of energy. <laughs> Could you imagine being so dumb? To a fish, life is see a fly, want a fly, eat a fly. A rainbow trout never really reflects on where his life is going. A girl carp rarely says to a boy carp, you know what, I don't feel like you're as committed to this relationship as I am. I'm not sure that you love me for anything more than just my body. Because fish are a collection of appetites. A fish is a stomach and a mouth and a pair of eyes. And so this, this writer went on, he said, while I was on the water, I was struck by how dumb the fish are. Hey, swallow this. It's not the real thing, it's just a lure. You'll think it'll feed you, but it won't. I'll trap you. If you were to look closely, fish, you'd see the hook. 
You know once you're hooked that it's just a matter of time before the enemy reels you in. You'd think the fish would wise up and notice the hook or see the line. You'd think the fish would look around at all of their fish friends who go for a lure and fly off into space and never return. But they don't. It's ironic. We say fish swim together in school, but they never learn anything. Aren't we glad we are so much smarter? Jesus, in the book of Luke, is introduced to us over some over the first three chapters in well-known stories um, that we go through at Christmas time over and over again. So I'm not going to start there. I'm going to start in Luke chapter 4 at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at, at about, according to Luke, at about the age of 30. Many of you know the story. Jesus comes to the River Jordan where his cousin John is baptizing people. And Jesus, being obedient to the will of the Father... Um, overrides John's decision not to baptize him. John baptizes him. Jesus comes out of the water, and a voice comes down from heaven. And the voice says, You are my son in whom I, in whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Now, look, if you're in ministry, this is about as good as it gets. Right? Imagine that. A voice coming down from heaven, kind of anointing you. This is the spiritual mountaintop experience. But then Luke goes into something weird. You would think right after that, Luke would go and say, and then Jesus went and healed, or Jesus went and taught, or Jesus went into the temple and rebuked. But that's not what happens. Right after that story, Luke just immediately goes into a genealogy of Jesus. Why would he do that? And unlike the other genealogies in the Gospels, Luke takes his all the way back to Adam. Relating Jesus through the generations all the way back to the first man. And he does it on purpose. Because Paul, some of you know of him as St. Paul, if you come from, from different faith backgrounds. St. Paul would write that Jesus represents the second Adam. That there was the Adam who fell and now there was this second Adam. Paul would put it one time like this. For just as through disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And so that's where we start with today's life lesson. And it has to do with this disobedience that the first Adam fell to, this temptation the first Adam fell to, and this temptation uh, to be disobedient that the second one didn't. I have two dogs at my house. Um, if you are friends with uh, anybody in my family, we post a lot of pictures of these dogs because they make us laugh. Uh, we have a little dog that's probably about 10 or 15 pounds named Molly. And uh, Molly is 10 or 12 years old. And Molly is kind of a, Molly thinks she's bigger than she is. Uh, and she's kind of a tough old broad. And uh, then we have Moose. And Moose is like a 70, 75 pounds, something like that. Black lab with something else mixed in. We're not sure what, but uh, we got him as a rescue. And Moose is three years old, and he's a perpetual puppy. And uh, Moose is scared to death of Molly because when Moose came, Molly was big, and in his mind, he never converted the thought process over. <laughs> and so he thinks Molly rules the house. And we have this ritual at night when it's time to feed them, or in the morning. We put their food in the bowl, and Moose inhales his in about two seconds. And then he just sits, and he waits. And he waits for Molly to get done with her food. And he'll just sit there because Molly takes her time. It's almost like she looks at him and just takes her time eating it, eating it. And then slowly, if you just watch, you'll see something start to happen with Moose. His lip will start to quiver. And then his little ball of saliva will start to, to accumulate. And you'll just see him sitting there watching Molly. And there'll literally just be drool hanging down off of his mouth. 
because he's so tempted to go and get that food. It's right there. And I could take it. I'm bigger. But, there, but, but there's something that, that just keeps him in line. Temptation, right? Here's why I, I laugh at the story. Because so often I'm just like Moose. Like, I find myself so tempted by things, like, just staring at them, you know? And I can feel, like, you ever drive through certain neighborhoods and you can feel your lips start to quiver a little bit? Oh, you know? You go, Joan and I went to uh, look at mattresses yesterday. I don't really have time for all these stories, but, you know, <laughs> a couple years ago, you know, I'm, I can be cheap. And uh, a couple years ago, we needed a new mattress, and we were in Costco, and they had a mattress in a box. Has anybody ever gotten one of these mattresses in a box? I said, Joan, this is the best possible deal. Like, got, what could go wrong? It's Costco. And so we got a mattress in a box, and it just has not been all that great, and my wife wakes up with all kinds of pains. It's horrible, somebody said. <laughs> and so it hasn't been all that good. And uh, so yesterday, we went to the mattress store. And uh, has anybody been to a mattress store lately? Do you realize what they are charging for some of these mattresses? I owned, in my old life when I was an investor, I owned a mattress company, Spring Air Mattress Company. I was one of the owners. And I remember going to the factory one time, and they, it's, they have all these marketing things. And I was telling them, well, why do you do this? Why do you put that in there? Why do you have this kind of spring versus that kind of spring? And the guy that owned the plant goes, sir, let me just explain to you. We're selling wood boxes with springs in them. He said, we got to do something to make you think that this is worth spending the money on. Now, I know this. And I go to that mattress store yesterday, and what mattress do you think my eyes just can't get their eye? I mean, these mattresses are $5,000, right? There's the same box with springs in it over here in the back corner of the store under the value sign. I can't be seen over there. What, you know, I'm a man like me. I need to be looking. It's just, it's there. I could feel my lip quivering towards that $4,500 mattress. I just kind of wanted it. This story that we're going to look at with Jesus is spiritually, deeply significant for your life. Right after Luke goes through this story about who the old Adam is and who the new Adam is, let me show you, tell you why. He does this because he wants to make sure you and I would understand something about temptation and how to respond to it. Oscar Wilde once quipped, I can resist anything except temptation. See, some of you in the room right now are struggling with temptation. Some of you are struggling with the temptation for chocolate. Some of you are struggling with the temptation to, stay, to go to sleep. But some of you are struggling with deeper temptations. One that are put, ones that are putting a lot of things in your life and in your family and in your job at some significant amount of risk. I don't know if it's money or booze or women or stuff on the internet. What's your, what is it that gets you? You know, we all have those things we know, right? There's hundreds of folks that are going to show up here today over the, over the couple of services. And some of them are struggling with things that are about to shipwreck their lives. Now, being tempted is not a sin. Jesus was tempted, and he was sinless. Here's the issue. The issue is twofold. The first is, I want you, when you leave this morning, to get a better understanding of why it is that you're tempted. Because it's not because chocolate tastes good or she was pretty. That's actually not why you're tempted. And the other thing I want you to understand is, what's at risk when you're tempted? So let's get out of it. Here's the first thing I want you to understand about temptation. Every temptation that you and I have, all of the times we're tempted to do something that we know is just clearly outside of the bounds of what God would have for us. Maybe it's against the promises we made to someone or the, against the integrity that we'd like to believe we have. Every temptation we face is really driven 
by only one of three things. Did anybody know this? I've been learning so much about this this week. Was, my wife and I went on a little date yesterday, and I'm telling her, do you know about the three issues that drive temptation? And Joan's going, well, I just wanted to have an appetizer. Anyway, <laughs> here's, here's the important point, because if you get this, I think it could take the teeth out of temptation. Every temptation you face is not really about women or drugs or pornography or position. Those aren't the real issue. Those are the tricks the enemy uses to get at an underlying issue that's a heart matter for us. Here's how John, who walked with Jesus, spoke of temptation. 1 John 2.16, he said, For everything in the world, this broken world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. John says, look, it's not about chocolate or girls. It's not about test scores or cars. There's something bigger at work in why you're being tempted. There's a force at work in this world that is not coming from God, but here's what it does. It tempts you to do all of various, uh, various things because of three things. Maggie, you can put that slide up. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, if you'll get this, you'll be able to identify this when you're tempted in those moments, and it, you will see it has the power to unmask these things for you. The lust of the flesh is that temptation to feel physical pleasure from something clearly outside the bounds of what God would, would want. To do something that makes your flesh feel good. You want to know, I'll give you the, you ever get like some really juicy information about someone? What's the first thing you want to do when you get it? Tell someone. There's just something about, oh my gosh, if I could just tell you what I know about him, what he did. Have you heard about her? This is the, the lust of the flesh, sexual sin, physical violence, addiction issues. They're all drawn from this one issue, the lust of the flesh. The second one, the lust of the eyes. This is why in the scriptures it says, you know, don't covet your neighbor's wife. The problem is we don't just cover our neighbor's wife. We cover his house, his car, his job, his TV. I mean, heck, we could cover his, covet his lawn, his mailbox. You name it. I love to cover my neighbor's stuff. I love to set my eyes upon something that I desire. Here's the third one. The third is the pride of life. This one is maybe my biggest issue. I don't know where you guys are on this. The pride of life is that sinful temptation to pursue greatness or power, significance, respect, honor, praise, we all want to feel valued and loved or to have power and position. Now, these three issues are responsible, if you think about this, for almost every problem that man has run into since the beginning of time. And if, you, if you'll get this, you can detooth de some of these things. Let me show you. How did the first Adam respond? Why Luke wanted to lay out that lineage of Jesus, this second Adam, back to the first Adam. Here's how the first Adam responded, coming out of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, what do you have there? Lust of the flesh. I'm hungry. And also, um, and pleasing to the eye, set her eyes upon it. It looked good. And also, desirable for gaining wisdom, because now I could be wise like God. She took some and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. 
That's pretty cool. Three temptations, and at their heart, at the heart of all three is a deep-seated issue. One singular issue. Do I trust God to come through for me? Do I trust his promises? Do I believe that his will, his desire for me and my life is what best? Or do I believe that, no, 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 I can't trust him. I got to step out on my own. I have to do this for myself. He's not going to come through for me. And since he won't, I shall, I have to. At the heart of our sin and all our temptation problems are those three issues. And so here comes the second Adam. And right after this spiritual mountaintop experience, does he go to the temple? No. Does he go to the city streets? No. Here's what the scripture says. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 through 2, right after the genealogy chapter of, let me show you what happened with the old Adam. This should sound familiar because here comes the second Adam. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Not surprising, right? Detail you would think they might not need to add. And so the devil says to him a couple of interesting things about temptation. First of all, temptation usually, especially for those of us trying to follow Christ, usually comes immediately on the heels of, of spiritual breakthroughs. Um, you, you, you want to taste temptation? Go, go make some headway uh, for God, and temptation will quickly come. Um, second thing is about temptation, it tends to come when you're weak. Satan knows when to attack. So here's what the devil said to him. How do you think the devil's going to attack him? Same way. If you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Satan tempts him with a legitimate need. Look, you know, you're hungry. Your flesh is crying out. The lust of the flesh. Jesus, you're hungry, you've been out here, you've been praying, you've been fasting, you're coming off this spiritual high, you're a little bit weak now, I'm sure your father would want you to eat. Here, there's nothing sinful about this, Jesus, just turn this stone into some bread. What's the big deal? You ever read this and, and go, why is that so bad? What would be so bad about turning, I mean, Jesus is legitimate, he's legitimately hungry. God would want you to eat it, Jesus. Jesus, there's a lot of promises in the scripture about God taking care of his people. Just eat. See, here's the deal, though. This Adam, unlike the first Adam, and unlike me so often, Jesus sees what's going on. Jesus sees that the issue is not his hunger or the bread. Jesus sees that the issue is not his self-control. The issue is this. Even when I'm hungry, even when I'm in need, even when things aren't going the way I think they should... Jesus comes across a legitimate physical need, and the question for him after 40 days of hunger is even now, can I continue to trust my heavenly Father, or should I just do this on my own? Should I just take a legitimate need and meet it in an illegitimate way? And in fighting off this temptation, Jesus, because he knows what's going on, he reaches back to an Old Testament story. Now, a lot of you guys know the story. God brings Egypt out, or Israel out of Egypt. Hundreds of years, 400 years of the brutal boot of the Egyptians on their throat as Pharaoh's slaves. Moses takes them out across the Red Sea. There's lots of them, probably two million or so of them. They track over the desert to a promised land, the land of milk and honey. 
And on their way, in order to feed these two million people in a desert, God does this daily miracle. Every day, for 40 years, every single day, other than the Sabbath, he feeds them for 40 years. Every day. Day after day after day after day. For 40 years, the Israelites would wake up, and on the ground there's this cake-like substance called manna. And they would eat. Every day for 40 years, God provided it. Not for one or two days. He could have just put a big mountain of it there. They could have all put it in their backpacks and carried it with them. In fact, if you know the story, God says, don't try to store it. If you try to store it up, it's just going to rot. The only day you could store it is the day before the Sabbath because I don't want you to work. But other than that, if you try to store this up, it's not going to be any good. And so God gives them their daily bread. Now, God does this for two reasons. The first is to meet a very legitimate need. His people needed food. His people need food. He had called the people out. He was providing for them on the way. But the second reason was this, to teach them over and over and over and over again that God can be trusted. God can be counted on. God is going to come through for you. It was a daily 40-year reminder every morning, get up Get food. Be reminded. God will provide it. God will provide it. You can't save it, but it's okay. God can be trusted. God can be trusted. God can be trusted. Now, remember I told you there's at the heart of all these temptations that one issue. Can God be trusted? And for 40 years, God's trying to tell his people, look, I, I want you to know every day. I could give it to you all at once, but I want you to wake up every day and go. I have to teach you because I know what's going to happen. I have to teach you that I can be trusted. So after 40 years, they arrive in the land of promise, and it's time to build houses and cities and walls and armies. And as they get ready to do all those things, Moses calls them together. He goes, guys, guys, come, come here. i got to tell you something. It's very important. As they begin these new lives as people with their own lands and farms, Moses pulls them together. And here's what he says to them. He said, when, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities that you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. Vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you don't forget the Lord. Who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. And he would go on to say this. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that... Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Moses says, guys, before, you, before we go in there and we start taking care of ourselves, and we start hoping in ourselves and believing in ourselves, I want you to remember that God did this, and he did it for a reason. He wanted you to know that having your needs met, having your physical needs met, was not the primary issue. There was something else that needed to be taught to you. God was showing us that he could be trusted, that being in relationship with him is important, that he's faithful. In other words, having what you need physically isn't enough for you. Jesus would do this when he fed the 5,000 later in his ministry, right? The next day they came back wanting more. They were hungry again. They, their flesh was roaring. And Jesus says, if you really want to eat today, I want you to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. He was trying to speak to them about, about a relationship with God that was different than simply meeting their physical needs. 
God is saying, look, I'm the source of all of those needs. Every time you get tempted to get what you think you need, every time you're tempted to do it on your own, it's the equivalent of saying, I don't trust you, God. I don't think you're going to come through. Nothing's going to happen. I don't trust you. Every time you're tempted, your confidence in God at one level or another, this is why it's so risky. Your confidence in God is at stake. And when you quit trusting in God, when you think you have to make it happen yourself, no matter what the cost, oh, no one will know. No one will see what I did. It's just one night. It's just one glance. It's just a little drink. When you quit obeying, you will quit trusting. And when you quit trusting, eventually you will quit believing because you will start to believe that you're the one that needs to come through and you don't need to follow God. So Satan is saying to Jesus, Jesus, just meet your need. There's nothing wrong with turning a stone into bread. You're hungry. If God loved you, he would have given you food by now. If God loved you, he would have provided a husband for you by now. If God loved you, he would have figured out a way for you to get a better job by now. If God loved you, he would have cured your disease by now. You, don't, you shouldn't trust in God. Just assume you have to make it happen. And so Jesus looks at him. And he says, look, I know, I know the history of my people. I know this is what you try to do. I know this isn't about food. This isn't about hunger. This isn't about me being in self-control. This is a moral, moral, ethical will of God issue. And I am not going to abandon my fellowship with God to meet this need. And he says, it is written, hearkening right back to what Moses had taught his people. Man shall not live by bread alone. Well, Satan tries again. He didn't get him with the flesh, uh, lust of the flesh. He says, let me try the lust of the eyes. And he says, Jesus, come set your eyes on this. Come take a look at this. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'm going to give you all the authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it'll be all yours. Jesus, just take a look at this. Take a look at what's mine. And if you would just worship me for a second, I'll make it yours. I'm going to give you the thought. I'm going to give you, Jesus, I'm going to give you what you deserve. I mean, you deserve more than this. Jesus, look, you deserve the authority. This is everything that you've come for. I'm going to give it to you. You can have it. Heck, Jesus, no one will know. It's just the two of us up here. No one will know. It's just between me and you. And, it, and listen, it'll accomplish good things. You'll have authority. And of course, both Satan and Jesus, they know this is the very reason Jesus had come. That things had been placed under the authority of man in the garden. God had given man authority over the creation. And man in his fall had ceded that authority to, to Satan. And Jesus says, um, when he leaves the earth, that all authority has now been given back unto him. And so the temptation here for Jesus was to do the right thing, but to do it in the wrong way. To do the right thing, but then just to choose to do it in a, in a wrong way, a displeasing way to God. Satan says, if you want to see it, Jesus, look at it, Jesus. Feel it. Why don't you take it out for a test drive? 
just one drink. Why don't you just go out tonight with her? No one will know. I mean, nothing has to happen. It's, Jesus, for you, it's God's will. This is God's will. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to have authority. Just submit to me for a moment. And so, so this is a real temptation. Jesus was tempted by this. Because it mattered to Jesus. He knew if he had the authority that it was going to impact generations of people. This is going to happen to you. It happens to me. The very thing that you feel like God put you here for, you, you will get locked in on. And you want it so badly, even good things. And if you'll, you'll be tempted, just take your eyes off the truth or your values. Just compromise a little bit and you can gain it. The lie says it's just for a minute. No one would have to know. If I just compromise for a second, then I get what I want. And once I get to the other side, no one will know and everything will be fine. One, one writer said this. He, he told the story of a man who had, had been praying to get a bicycle. And he started to understand, coming to God every day for a bicycle, for a bicycle, for a bicycle. And he started realizing, I don't think this is the way God works. So his new plan was that he would just steal one and then ask for forgiveness. See, when that moment comes for you, when you start to think, if I don't make it happen, if I don't force it to happen, it's not going to happen. You tend to think that the issue is the girl or the grade or the job or the money. That's not the issue. The issue is your peace. The issue is your integrity. If I just looked over at her test, no one will know. And I might get into college. And if I get into a good college, I could do great things for the Lord. If I just took the one with the wrong price tag instead of the real price tag. Somebody once said to me when it comes to things like this, and it sticks in my head all the time, especially when things like that happen, when the cashier rings up the wrong price or something like that. They said, what, is your, what's, what price would you put on your integrity? Are you, you willing to, to, to sell out your integrity for the five bucks? Is that how cheap your integrity is to you? In that moment, when you take the shortcut, when you compromise what's important for what's immediate, you lose confidence in God. You're saying, I don't trust you, God. I don't trust you to get me the deal or the girl or the grade. There's this sense uh, of even when you get to the other side, those of you that have done this know this, even when you get to the other side, you go, hmm, I don't feel right about this. Temptation is this, always this test of your trust in God. It's not a test about your self-control. Please hear that. Temptation is not a test of your self-control. Temptation is a test of your trust in God. If I let this go, can I trust that God will take me where he wants me to be and that that would be better? In order to do the will of God, do I need to compromise the truth of God? Do you trust him? Can he be trusted? Or do you have to take things into your own hand? And so, with this temptation to sacrifice, what's important for what's immediate, Jesus, again, reaches back to Moses, who warned his people about forgetting about the God when they came into the promised land. And he remembers Moses told the people this. Right after he said, I'm afraid you're going to forget, he told them this. Fear the Lord your God and serve him only. Take your oaths in his name. Don't follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. 
I love what one writer said. He said, do you know what Jesus wanted more than the kingdoms of the earth? Satan offered him the kingdoms of the earth. What he wanted more than the kingdoms of the earth was unbroken fellowship with the Father. And at the end, Jesus got both. What do we want so often? We often want so much the kingdoms of the earth, and we wind up with neither. What is it that you want so bad that you would trade what's important to get? And so Jesus just quotes the story again. He says, look, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then finally, Satan, having failed on the first two, he gives it a, a third shot with the pride of life. He, he, he catches on, so he tries to quote some scripture, scripture back to Jesus. He pulls it, an Old Testament prophetic verse out of the Psalms. The devil led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. I'll, go, I'll tell you, Jesus, as you said, it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you won't strike your foot against the stone. Satan's saying, look, Jesus, this is going to be hard. Look, we're up on top of the temple. Do you see all those Pharisees? Do you see the Sadducees? Do you see all the religious people? They're never going to believe that you are the Son of God. I know you're the Son of God. You're not the Son of God. They're not going to believe it. They have no respect for you. But Jesus, if you would jump off of here, see, the Scripture says that God would catch you, and then they would know who you are. You should do that, Jesus. And you know what this is? This is the temptation, and we do it especially Christians, the temptation to presume on God. The sin of testing God. See, in the first temptation, a, a peril really existed, hunger. It was real. Here Jesus is asked to create the peril and then presume on God to deliver him from it. The sin of presumption on God. That I can do whatever it is I want. I can make my plans. I can grab a Bible verse to cover it. And then I can hold God accountable to blessing them. You said God right here in whatever. And that's what Satan's tempting Jesus with. Where does that come from? Jesus reaches right back because he, he knows the story. He knows his story. And he reaches back to the Old Testament again. And he shows, in his mind, he knows the story of, of the people of Israel wandering through the desert when they became, they were fed every day, but then they became thirsty. And in Exodus 17, they begin quarreling with Moses and saying, give us water to drink. And Moses goes, why are you quarreling with me? Why do you put the Lord to your test? Look, he's taking care of you. Why, why, are, you, why are you doing this? Cut it out. But the people were thirsty and they grumbled and they said, why would you even bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? God, you don't know what you're doing, God. Moses, you don't know what you're doing. I'd like to see you provide us with some water because I don't see any water here. And if you know the story, God comes through and he provides miraculously this water. And then Moses, a couple of verses later, calls this place where it happened in Exodus 17, 7. He calls it Massah and Meribeth because the Israelites quarreled and because, quote, they tested the Lord there, saying, is the Lord amongst us or not? Guys, believers, don't use God's power to test God. 
There is no sense in seeing how far you can go with God. There is no sense in putting yourself deliberately into threatening situations, doing it recklessly and needlessly, and expecting God to rescue from it. God expects his own people to take some risks, to trust him, but he doesn't expect them to take risks in order to enhance, enhance our own prestige. Oh, I know he's not a Christian guy, but I'm pretty sure if I marry him, God will come through. God, you, you said you, you, you wouldn't want us unequally yoked. I'm sure if I marry him that if I pray about this, God will change him. I mean, God loves me, right? I know I didn't study for the test, but I know God wants me to prosper. And if, if I get an F, that's really going to blow my testimony at school. So I think I'll just, I'm going to presume, I'm going to know that God is going to come through for me. I know I shouldn't have had that sixth drink last night, but I, I'm sure if I get pulled over, God doesn't want me to blow my witness, so I'm sure that I'll find favor with the police officer. Have you done this? I'm going to do things my way, and I'm going to presume that God will cover it for me, because he loves me. And see, Jesus again sees what he's up to, and he, Jesus goes, look, I don't test or manipulate God. I don't try to force his hand. I cooperate with God. I don't manipulate God. And he says this, it is said, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Let me close with this, church. Band, you can come up. When the devil had finished all of this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. See, he's coming back. This is our life. In fact, this is what Paul said to the Corinthians. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience because they all come from these three issues. And God's faithful. He's not going to allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. But when you're tempted, he'll show you a way out so that you can endure. Can I, can I, can I give you a couple things to think about? How did Jesus get out of these temptations? Anybody notice what he did every time? He quoted scripture. So here's the two things I want you to understand that, about that. The first is there's power in the word of God. It is not just scribbles on a paper. There's spiritual power in it, and Jesus was able to use it. In fact, you know Paul when he talks about um, uh, standing firm in faith in Ephesians? The only offensive weapon is the scripture. So in knowing the scripture, you'll be able to fight through some of this. This is why I'm making sure, I hope you'll sign up for this. I'm trying to teach you these weapons. Here's the second thing to know, though. Jesus did not just treat it as scripture. Jesus treated it as the story of his people. He was able to look back on his life, on the life of his people and go, no, 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 hold on a second. See, I don't have to turn this bread into stone because I remember in my story where God has come through for his people and provided food. Do you know in your story where God has come through for you and provided for you? He says, no, 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 I, I don't need to have all of the, the, the kingdoms of the world right now because I have enough in, in God. He's already given me more than I want. I, it's not my, my, I'm not going to be satisfied by owning a bigger house, nicer car, prettier wife. I don't need that stuff. Are you able to look back on your life and say God's been enough for me? I don't need to get these other things. This pride of life issue, right? Jesus looks back and says, no, 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 I, I, don't, I don't need somebody to call me the man right now. 
I don't need, I don't need to, I don't need to impress everybody by, by jumping off this building and being caught by God. I don't presume on God. That's not how I walk. I walk in faith and trust. So I, I would encourage you to sign up to do these scripture lessons with us. I would encourage you to know your story. Journal it. It's not just the scripture he fights Satan off with. It's also the concept of knowing that God has come through for him in the past. Lastly, there's a little bit of like an Oz-like thing here. It's not the woman. It's not the booze. It's not the position. It's not the guy. It's not the hotel. It's, it's not the chocolate cake. When you, when you see these temptations in your life, take the power away. Just start speaking to it. Lord, I, I, temptation, I know what you're doing here. You're trying to trick me with the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eye or, or the pride of life. And I'm not going to fall for it because I know my story and I know the scripture and I trust in God.